Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I want to thank the Young People's Socialist League for inviting me here and, of course, you good people for coming to hear about our movement. Our movement has been quite popular with the students. I didn't realize that I was that popular until tonight. There are other people with us here tonight that I'd like you to meet. They're from Delano. They've been here since February, many of them, and they're here conducting a boycott against the fresh grapes from California as a means of getting the employers to come around and talk to the union. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. Every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We won't be that. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, yes we, we can. can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. When we get enough money, honey, we'll bring me down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is... What will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, public Access, Access America. America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless America. One of the problems in America is that it's, it's, we live in, a, in an age and in a country of heroes. And many times, many, many times, this, is, this hurts movements. Many times this hurts people who for one, one reason or another, get in the spotlight. As you know, the struggle in Delano is a very basic struggle. It's a struggle for justice. And if you were a church group, I would tell you that it's a struggle for social justice. And if you were a group of labor leaders, I would tell you it's an economic, the struggle for economic justice. 
and you're a group of students, so I tell you it's plainly, very simply, a struggle against the power structure. <laughs> you know, it's very difficult to try to convey the, the power that these growers have because the history of our own country is one of, you see it everywhere, uh, people think that farming is a family affair. In California, farming is so big, really, that the growers themselves have, co have a new phrase for it, and they call, them, they call it agribusiness, and it's really that. When we think of power, powerful corporations, I'm sure that the first thing that would come to your mind would be General Motors, Ford, AT&T, and others. And no doubt they're very powerful. No doubt that they control a lot of commerce and money and so forth. But I'd like to tell you a little bit about the power that these growers have in, in, the, in the West, and in California in particular. The kind of power that land brings is a very awesome kind of power. It's an all-engulfing power. And all you have to do to understand this type of power is to look to Latin America, to look to, the, to Asia, and to look to other parts of the world, where land is a real issue, where a few control all the land and many have nothing. And there are three, in my opinion, there are three things that make them very powerful. See, if you own the land, you not only own everything that grows in that land, but you owe everything, you own everything that works on the land, everything that goes by that land. In fact, if you own the land, you own everything in that land and around that land. The beginning of agriculture in California is very enlightening, and it points even from the very beginning it points directly to what we see now. It's a beginning, it's never changed. It has the same course. Large land holdings, 600,000 acres, 100,000 acres, huge land holdings. They kept this land. The growers are getting the ones, there are only two types for a little while, and usually one type the one that keeps getting bigger and bigger and, and those small ones that keep losing out and keep folding up and moving into the cities. Once they had acquired most of the land, then they needed water. They had to have water to be able to make that land produce, to acquire the wealth and the power that they were seeking. And so what they did they controlled the Congress of the United States and the many state legislatures. And they went around and they passed law after law, setting up reclamation projects, where even today, in a couple of more years, we'll have a water project in California running almost 700 miles from one end of the state to the other, providing cheap water to the growers 
a lot cheaper they could pump from the ground and a lot cheaper they could get if they were to pay for it at a reasonable fair price. You know who's paying for that water? That water is being paid for by you and by us as soon as we get out of the strike. We don't pay taxes because we're not working to be on strike for two and a half years. But you're paying for that water. Also many years ago, in fact, 19, around 1905, the Congress of the United States saw what was happening. There were enough men there had the idea that the whole question of water development was intended for the small family farmer. And they passed, they enacted the so-called 160-acre water limitation. Simply means that the water developed by public funds can be used only only to irrigate no more than 160 acres. We have corporations in California today irrigating 160,000 acres. That law has never been enforced. It's never been enforced. In fact, very few laws have been enforced is it when it comes to that it's going to do something, it's going to attack the interests of these powerful growers. After they had the land and the water, they needed people to help. And you may be acquainted with the development of farm labor in California. Many, many years ago, when the railroads finished their project building the railroads in the West, there were many Chinese out of a job. And they moved back to the cities. And a few Chinese who were more enterprising and more uh, Americanized began to exploit their brothers by bringing them back to the farms and working as farm labor contractors. And they didn't stay long in the farm because they knew that there was no, no future for them. And they moved on back to the cities and we see many of them today in the small businesses. When the growers saw this, then they went to the Congress again and there started their push for poor people, for immigrants to do the, to do the work, the field work in California. And that has been a pattern that has never for once deviated. That's a pattern that they've used all, the, all these many years. They went to Japan, they went to the Congress, they enacted special legislation, they brought in Japanese. The Japanese came from Japan and after working a few years with the growers, knew there was no future for them. They wanted land. They began to acquire a little land, they began to also organize. They never had a formal union, but they were very effective in their organization. And we see that they were the first ones to begin to use effectively the slowdown. The growers went back to the Congress, went back to the state legislature in this case, and they enacted legislation prohibiting the Asians from owning land. And soon they went back to Congress again for more legislation. This, this, in this case, they went to India and they went to the Philippine Islands and they brought in Filipinos and they brought people in from India. And there wasn't enough, so then, up until about 1924, all of the immigration from Mexico into the United States had been really illegal. They were using illegals. By 1924, they made it legal the exploitation of Mexican workers. They enacted legislation to permit 
large numbers of workers from Mexico to come in to work in the, in the fields in the, in the United States, especially in California and the Southwest. And that pattern hasn't, hasn't deviated. It's the same thing. First, we had the people who ran away from the revolution in 1910 through 1923. After that, we have the people who immigrated after 1924. And then the beginning of the Second World War, we began, we started the, the Bracero program. After the Second World War, the Gores went to Congress and enacted Public Law 78. And two years ago, after much work by labor, by many church groups and many other people, Public Law 78 was no more. This didn't, help, this didn't stop the growers from getting braceros. They just, they found a loophole. So they say in Public Law 414, 414, and they're still bringing in braceros from Mexico. There are many arguments to sell the public on the idea that that they need people from Mexico or from other countries. Some are very ridiculous. For instance, one, one legislator, one U.S. senator, in his argument for the growers that they needed people to come from Mexico, he was asked very bluntly by another senator who was not too in accord with the program. He asked him, why do you want people from Mexico? And the reason is, and it's on the record, the reason he gave was, well, they're built close to the ground. And they can, therefore, they can do stoop labor. And then they talk about migratory workers, that the people here in this country don't want to do migratory work, or they don't want to do stoop labor. And let me tell you, and we have very good examples, no one can be as migrant as a seaman. No one could be as migrant as a seaman. They have enough people to do the job, but they pay them well. They take care of them. Talk about stoop labor. Well, just look at the construction trades. When a carpenter is putting uh, a roof, what is he doing? He's stooping, but he stoops for good money. And that's the difference. Agribusiness in California last year was almost $5 billion. It accounts for one out of every three jobs in the state. So you see we've got a job the kind of job we have to do is very simple, very difficult, but very simple. It's a fight of the poor against the rich. It's a fight of the weak against the powerful. I've been asked many times if organizing, it, it, what are you really, a union or are you a civil rights movement? And I say both. Any time that you strike anywhere in the country, we know every time we strike in California, every time we strike in California or in Texas, and I'm sure the South would be the same, if not especially worse. Every time we pull a strike, it becomes a question of civil liberties and civil rights. So it's really both. You're okay as long as you mind your business. The moment you strike, then you're, you're in trouble. I remember when we started the strike in, in Delano, we didn't plan it this way. We thought we were striking the growers. But we're really surprised. The city council in less than 24 hours had a special meeting and passed a resolution condemning the red tide. <laughs> and condemning the outside agitators. 
and you know the rest. And then the city, both the, the, the high school board and the elementary board met in joint session and they passed a similar resolution. The Chamber of Commerce met and of course we, we know what to expect from them. But then the church met. We can claim one thing out of the strike. If nothing else, we can claim that we were responsible for getting the Protestants and the Catholics together. For the first time in that city, they got together and they passed the same resolution. <laughs> We've changed part of that. Some of the ministers have seen the light and uh, they have consulted the New Testament, so they're working with us. In one of the cases, we have uh, new, the new breed, the new kind of priest. Franciscans working with us, and they're organizing. But not all has changed. But every time we get a victory, we get a, a little bit more help. And the further we get from Delano, the more support we get from the church. Not only were the employers then passing legislation to get land and passing legislation to get water, paid for by you, but all, and also passing legislation on immigration, they were very active in another area. They were very active in the whole realm of social and labor legislation, very active keeping the farm workers out. Some of the great arguments, excluding the farm worker, from coverage under the National Labor Relations Act during the Roosevelt administration, when the, for the first time, the industrial workers or all the workers were covered. We were excluded. We were excluded because farm work was something different. It just wouldn't work because a small family type worker couldn't, just couldn't live with a union. And when the question of unemployment insurance came up, Oh, this was uh, also not really needed for the farm worker. But the farm worker, uh, the farmer took care of his worker, even though he wasn't a worker. He gave him a turkey or a chicken or eggs or milk. And so therefore, they, he, it wasn't needed. And the small type family grower couldn't afford that type of legislation. And so we were excluded. When the Social Security was enacted, Believe it or not, we were excluded. It wasn't, up, it wasn't until January 1st, 1955, that farm works were included in the Social Security, and then we were partially included. If you work in industry, to get full coverage, a quarter of full coverage, you have to earn $50. Farm works have to earn $150. Or they've got other, other uh, exclusions work 20 days for any one employer, and very hard things to meet. And so really we're kept out of it. And they've excluded us from everything. We've been excluded from citizenship. We've been, our rights have never been given to us. You know, sometimes I wonder if there, are, there isn't one other reason, one other very overriding reason why we were excluded. See, if you look at the makeup of the uh, farm labor from the Depression on, by and large, and more so today, who was working, who is a farm worker? Of course, the lowest paid worker in America, no question about that. 
the most exploited and so forth, the less protected. But besides all of these things, he is a minority group, racial minorities, Negroes and Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and Japanese in the beginning, now most of them are growers now, and Chinese and so forth. And so sometimes I wonder if really there wasn't another reason why we were excluded. And I'd like to charge that Congress in 1935-36 that they were, maybe they were really, maybe the real reason when after everything was said and done, we were excluded because we just didn't fit the, the, the standard pattern or the, we just weren't really Americans, we weren't white. Maybe this is another reason, I don't know. But I do know we've been excluded, and even today. We've been excluded from so many things. I remember not too long ago talking to a group of farm workers about the exclusions and how much work we have to do politically to be able to get that, those benefits. And he told me a, a story, and I'd like to tell it to you, it's very short. It's about a farm worker named Juan Garcia who worked in a little farm, and he died one day, of course. And he went up to heaven and knocked on the gates at heaven, and a voice, the doors didn't open, but a voice from inside wanted to know who was out there. And so the voice said, who is out there? The farm worker, Juan Garcia, said, this is a poor farm worker, and I'd like to come in. The voice inside asked, do you have a horse? Juan Garcia says, no, I'm a poor farm worker. I don't have a horse. My boss has horses, but I don't have one. The voice inside said, well, I'm very sorry. You cannot come in. He was, of course, very, very disturbed, and he thought for a while, and he says, well, I'll go back. I'll go back to Earth, and I'll get the employer to either rent a horse to me or lease a horse to me or give it to me or sell it on credit or I'll make an arrangement so I can come back and enter into heaven. So he started back to earth. About halfway, he was resting under a tree when all of a sudden his employer appeared. He had also died that morning. And after recognizing one another, he wanted to know, the farm worker wanted to know what he was doing up there. So the employer said, his name was um, John Jones, and he said, we'll call him that. And he said, well, I just died and I'm going to heaven. So Juan Garcia, told him that you can't, you're walking, he says, yes, you can't go in. Let me think this over and I'll, I'll find a solution to it. The farm worker proposed then that they both walk back to the farm and get two horses and come up. And the employer said, no, it's too far to walk back. Let, let me see, I'll, I'll come up with something. And after some consideration, the employer told him and got the answer. He said, of course, this is not in, uh, we'll make it, I'll make a deal with you. Uh, you have to understand this wasn't in writing. To make a deal with you, uh, let's both go back to the gates. And when I, we get there, this is the employer talking to the worker, you get down on your hands and knees and I'll get on top of you and I'll knock on the door and when they ask me if I have a horse, I'll say yes, I have a horse and this way both of us can go in. And the worker immediately thought it was a great idea and agreed to it. It was a verbal agreement, nothing in writing. And so they went back to the gates. They got near the gate, close to the gate, 
and the farm worker got on his hands and knees and the employer got on top, knock on the door, the voice inside called out, who is there? The employer says, this is the employer, John Jones, and I want to come in. The voice inside said, do you ask, do you have a horse? And the employer said, yes, I have a horse. The voice inside said, okay, tie the horse, the horse outside and come in. And this is what has happened to us. We've been kept out of society too long. We want to become part of the human race. And, and above everything else, we'd like to very, very much become a part of the American scene. We're not asking for too much. What we're asking for really is just, just what every other worker is asking for, the right to bargain collectively with the employer. If we can take care of them, we can get that right. No question about that. You may often wonder, I'm sure, and ask, why is it that you have to boycott to win your strikes? Well, the reason we're boycotting, obviously, because we can't stop production. We can't stop the harvest. We can't get the scabs out of the fields. And let me tell you why we can't do that. 95 to 98 percent of the workers in Delano in the, in the strike zone are with the union. The resident workers, the ones that had those jobs before the strike started. But 250 miles from Delano, south, is the Mexican border. And we have, we have a new program. It's called the Green Card Commuter. This is a Mexican worker who has a green card, who gives him the right to come into this country, but who resides, lives in Mexico, and crosses the border every day to work, and then goes back at night. If you go to Mexicali, this is in Calexico, you will see, depending on the season, from 30 or from 20 to 30,000 workers cross that line every morning from 3 to 5 o'clock in the morning. Thousands and thousands cross. And then in the evening, they go back to Mexico. They live over there. If you go 40 miles further to the east, Near Yuma, you'll see another eight to 10,000 crossing every morning. They live in Mexico, they come to work here as far as 150 miles and they return back every day. And if you go west towards San Diego, in San Isidro, you'll have another five or 10,000 I'm crossing every day, plus other smaller points. And it's this problem, this is the problem, that this is the reason why we haven't won the strike. After 32 months of striking, the reason we can't win that strike is because all the employer has to do is take his bus or his truck, go to the border, place a truck right in the crossing there, and he can fill that truck with strike breakers in 10 minutes, and then deliver him to, take him to Delano and place him in his own camp, a camp that we can't go to because it's in private, on private property, and at times we've tried to go there, we get arrested. And so these men, in many cases, don't even know a strike exists and we can't go to see them. Those of us who have tried to have been arrested for trespassing. And so this is, the pro this is the problem. Now, the law says this. If the Secretary of Labor certifies a strike, then it's automatic that the Department of Im the Immigration Service, the Border Patrol, would not permit a green carter to work in a strike place. This is automatic. For two years, two and a half years, we have never been able to get the, the federal government, the Immigration Service, the Border Patrol, 
to take one green carter out of the field, breaking the strike against federal legislation. It's against the policy of the federal government, yet they're not, in they're not enforcing that. It's no enforcement. We've worked, we've cried, and we've screamed, we've done everything we could. We haven't been able to get enforcement. Three weeks ago, we appealed to the AFL-CIO, and we asked them to go see the administration, to go see Secretary Works and to go see uh, Ramsey Clark, and they did. And after some arguments, they got an assurance that they would start enforcing the law. We had documented over 400 cases, names, addresses, uh, social security numbers in some cases, uh, license registrations, license plates, the whole works to prove our point. And so they sent from Washington a nine-man task force, five men from the, from, the, from the Immigration Service and four from the Labor Department. And we were supposed to meet for two days. We met for less than half a day. The other day and a half was spent in bitter fighting with them. We really took them on. It was a good kind of fight. And after the, everything was said and done, we, we wrote up an agreement. They screamed like heck because we, they claimed we were trying to negotiate with them. And in fact, this is what we were doing. So we got an agreement. That's contract number 13. And the agreement stated that they were going to bring more men into the area. They were going to follow every lead that we gave them. They were going to really make an attempt to enforce it. And they went out. The, the evening of the second day, we gave them 10 names. The penalty for breaking a strike if you're a green carter is deporta deportation. You lose your, your alien status and you're sent back to Mexico. And so we told the Immigration Service, we don't want that. We just want the people out of the fields. We don't want them to be, uh, any charges be brought against them. They went out and they picked up two, one boy, one girl, young men and women. Brought them in, they charged them with breaking the regulation, and they put them in jail with a $500 bond. The employer got the bond. One of the conditions of the bond was that they were not supposed to re return to work with Jamara. There are 24, 24 growers, Jamara is one of them, so this, both of them were working with Jamara. And so the condition of the bond was that they would not return to work with Jamara. You know what they did the following day? They went right back to Jamara on advice of Jamara and his attorneys. And they're working there today. And we're screaming our head off, and we can't get any enforcement. Ordinarily, you would say, well, you know, uh, people give up on politics, I guess, when they have these experiences. We're not about to give. We're not going to run away from it. We're going to stay in there fighting until we, get, until we get what we have coming. We're going to stay in there until we force the federal government to, con to conduct an investigation and really enforce the law. You know what happens the day they enforce the law? We're going to win the strike. We don't have to boycott. In the meantime, we've got to boycott. In the meantime, we've got to boycott in, in, in New York and in other places. But this is the reason why we can't win the strike. This has been the only reason why we haven't been able to, to really get that strike over with and get those contracts and get those remaining 24 growers to sit down and write a contract with us. If you were to ask me which are the most important, the three most important items in the 
drive the organized workers, it would be very easy, I would say, immediately union recognition. Because see, when an employer recognizes us, it's not only recognizing our right to have a union, really what they're saying, oh, you know, we recognize that you're human beings and we're equal and we sit across the table and we hammer out an agreement. So that's why it's important because we get the recognition and the dignity that they took away from us, we get it back. And if we get a contract, we get a little, bit more, a little money on top of that too. And the second item is wages. And we're not talking about $2 an hour or $3 or $4 or $5 an hour. We're talking about an increase in wages. And that's something that's negotiable. Then number four, and you'll be surprised, number, number three rather, is safety. Safety is very important. Let me tell you why. Safety not only in farm equipment, farm machinery, that's important, but safety in something even worse than that. See, we have now in California and in, in, in all areas of the country, we've made great advances in pesticides and insecticides. And this, the, the university in California and universities all over the country, I'm sure, especially in farm states, know how many bugs each pesticide and insecticide is going to kill. They know exactly how, how many it's going to kill and how long they will remain dead. But they don't know, and they don't care to know what effect it has on the human being. They don't care. So it's very, very, very serious. Let me tell you, three weeks ago, a small clinic that we have in Delano, it's housed in a house trailer, a lady came in. She had been, she had been handling this, this very highly poisonous chemical. She came in, she was beginning to lose her fingernails. Eventually she lost all of her fingernails. See, what happens is that you don't get the, re you, don't, the, the you don't know what's happening because if you handle any of these highly toxic chemicals, you don't, get the, you don't feel the effects, you don't know the effects immediately. It's two weeks, three weeks, four, six weeks later you begin to have some effects. Not right away. For instance, we have many cases where a member, a farm worker, will be spraying these very dangerous chemicals, and then he's all over this. He's sprayed for two weeks or three weeks or a week, and it's all over. Six weeks later, he begins to have problems with his vision. Comes to a doctor and he can't see well, or there's something wrong. Cases where People will use the, uh, the insecticides, and then two months, three months later, they begin to get skin poisoning. So it takes such a long time to, to begin to work, it's a very slow thing, that we're always having great arguments on the uh, industrial accident uh, cases. They don't want to take into consideration. Now, those sprays, dangerous chemicals, usually have a, an oily base so they'll stay on, that, on the vineyard or whatever it is, and the tree stay there. I can't prove this, but it seems to be a good idea that there is more than one reason why you should help us in the boycott. If you were to say, well, they're in California, I'm in New York, and well, we have so many other, so many other human needs. Uh, they can take care of themselves. And, and as far as the boycott, I like grapes anyway. And, and 
If I buy a small bunch, it's not going to really hurt anything. If you were to say that, let me give you a good reason why you shouldn't eat grapes. How do you know? How do you know? Or how do I know if some of those residues of those sprays are not on those grapes? So if you don't want to do it because of convictions, do it because of your health. <laughs> also, a lot of talk about our uh, few minor successes in organizing. I'd like to say very briefly some of the things we did. Before we went into organizing farm workers, and we, most of us have been farm workers and we're farm workers, we studied the attempts, many attempts to organize workers, starting way back in the, some of the first work stoppages in 1887, 1889, 1890, 1901, 1902, 1903. The Wobblies, great efforts, savage reprisals against them to break their strikes, and they did. And after the Wobblies in the 20s, there were periods of spontaneous organization. During the beginning, early 30s, everyone came into organized workers. From the communists on the left to the FLCA on the right, everybody came in. And each and every strike was lost. Each and every strike was a defeat. Every attempt to organize was thwarted. And we looked at these things very carefully. And we came to the conclusion that they were trying to do two jobs in one. They were trying to organize and strike at the same time. And we said, we're not going to do that. We're going to organize very quietly. And then when we're ready, we're going to strike. And so that's what we did. We started organizing in early 62. There wasn't a word of what we were doing in the press in any way until September 8th of 1965 when the strike broke up. The growers were... were convinced that there was no union. They were convinced that there was, it was just a, a workers' rebellion, as they call it. Sure enough, it was a rebellion organized this, in, this, in this case. And that there was no union. They were sure it was, there was no union. If they were sure that if a union had been organizing, that they would know. But they didn't. And I think of any of the accomplishments, I think I would say, I would consider this is to be the best and the the, the one I'm most proud of. Then we began to organize, and we did something that's, to build a, a base, to get a nucleus, we did something that's very common. If you were to organize a student's organization throughout the country, I'm not a student, I've never been a student, but if I were a student, I'm sure you would agree with me, instead of trying to organize your city college here completely 100%, all the students in one mass organization. It would send a reason it would take a long time to do that. But if you want a nucleus throughout the country, then you'd go and you would just appeal to those students who are ready to organize anyway. We did the same thing. We went to over 100 towns, 180-some small communities and camps, from one end of the valley to the other end, the biggest, the wealthiest valley in the country. And we, we just went to those workers who are ready to organize. We didn't have to sell anything to them. They knew what they wanted. And we were there and we got together. In some cases, one worker, two, three, four. No more than five workers who we didn't have to sell, who were really to make, ready to make the sacrifice and wanted to go. And this is how we built a nucleus. And then around that nucleus, we began to build in all these little places. And then we, we separated the business of striking. We got the strike idea question, you know, set aside and said, we'll come to you when we're ready over here. And then we, we proceeded by organizing. In order to get the people 
to show some minor, minor victories, we then went beyond the traditional labor involvement. We, it was a, a mixture of labor plus community organization. And this was very simple. Our experience had been in community organization for 15, 17 years before we came to the land of organized farm workers. And we tied together a group with uh, some small co-op programs, a lot of personal service programs, and using whatever laws were at our disposal, trying to win some small victories and showing the workers that there was something there. And this is how we got together until uh, September of 65 when the strike started. Also nowadays, there's a lot of talk about violence versus nonviolence and which is more effective and how we should do it. And I'm, as you know, an advocate of nonviolence, and every time I speak, I say nonviolence, immediately people think that where he is, if he's, he's nonviolent, then he must be then um, willing to accept gradual change. And believe me, no one is in, in more of a hurry than I am to get change right now. Or they will say, many friends, many people say, uh, how come you're not militant? And is nonviolence really, is nonviolence really cowardly? And I have to respond to that. First of all, people who think that violence is the way out, seems to me, never, never preach it. They do it. My experience has been that, uh, and I come from the, well, we don't, we call them barrios over there, you call them ghettos here. The guys who were very quiet, never said anything, they were the ones that committed to things, did the things. When I was a teenager, and the guys that talked all over the place, they didn't do anything. It's a good example. Five months after we started the strike, we were having, really taking a beating, and it looked like we were going to be destroyed. I have a friend who came from the days when we were youth, from the days when we used to be pachucos, I don't know if you know what that means. And we set up all night arguing. He wanted to be violent and we should have violence immediately to win the strike, otherwise we would lose. And I set up to about three o'clock in the morning trying to reason with him that nonviolence was really the way out, the only way. And from about three o'clock, I had to be at the office to dispatch the pickets at four. I said, John, I said, you win, you win. I think violence, I think it's, we should do, be violent. I said, if you give me just half an hour to dispatch the pickets, I'll talk to you some more. I think you've got me convinced. I went and I sent the pickets out and I said, okay, brother, let's you and I go commit some violent acts. He said, no, 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 you have it wrong. I meant the striker should commit violence. <laughs> the striker should commit, you should commit, we know, we shouldn't, you should. Or, the question of nonviolence is always raised. Well, you're nonviolent. What would you do if our country was being invaded by, say, another Hitler? And all I can say to that is that nonviolence will stand any test, any true test. Nonviolence gets into trouble when you put it in the abstract. Then there we're in trouble. We can't defend it. But in reality, nonviolence can, can stand any test. I'm convinced of that. But see, Let's examine it further. 
I wish I didn't have this mic so I could, I'm, I'm sort of tied to it. I don't like, anyway, anytime I talk on one of these, you know, back there I get arrested. The, the organizer who, after trying very hard, doesn't succeed and has a following. And it's crying and he can't, he begins to get the pressure from the membership. Political pressure, and he wants to keep that position. And he's got to produce. If he doesn't produce, he's out. Out in the sticks. It would seem to me that in that case, if you want that position very badly, you, and if your membership is urging you to have violence in order to win, because you can't win with your nonviolence, it would seem to me that if you want that position badly enough, you're going to commit violence in order to keep the position. And you and I know, although we're not, I'm not an expert, that the only way you can win is to be always on the march, to be always the aggressor. That's a bad word. To be always on the move. And the moment you begin to defend yourself, you're lost. The moment you begin to defend, you're lost. And, that, and any time that you use violence, what happens? Any time you use violence, the cards are turned against you. Then you, become, you begin to defend yourself. And the, the central issue is forgotten because you're too concerned about staying out of jail or keeping your membership out of jail. And the pressure you had in our case it were to be violent. The pressure we had on the, uh, the boycott, the strike would have to be, would become secondary, of secondary importance, because the most important thing is to keep out of jail. Nonviolence, sure it's difficult. But if you have organizers who are confident, who are confident, they don't have to look to, to, towards violence to so, solve the problems. It can be done. It can be done with, with nonviolence. But, see, nonviolence has another great demand. Nonviolence demands creativity, a lot of it. It demands a lot of time. Not eight hours a day, not 12, but it demands 24 hours a day. You've got to be able to, every time there's an opening, Every time the opposition makes a, a wrong move, you're Johnny on the spot, right there to take advantage of that opening. Always legally. See, it seems to me that, it seems to me that at the point where you get in trouble organizing, where you can't move forward, only at that point do you begin then to examine whether nonviolent means are really important or whether you should change. How many successful movements have ever stopped halfway and said, well, we're very successful and we're nonviolent, we should change to violence? Not a one. You don't. You only stop at that point where you're, you're stopped dead in your tracks, then you begin to examine it. We know that in organizing people, takes a long time. It's a lifetime. Now one of the problems that I, one of the great problems that I faced many years ago when I began doing community organization was that I wanted to work eight hours or ten hours a day and give everything I had. I was very young then. But once I went home, I didn't want to be bothered. I really didn't want to be bothered. Or going with a picnic basket with my family to stop off at mass in the morning at church and then go to a picnic and all of a sudden here comes a family who has a problem. 
and I couldn't go any place. I had to take care of it. I didn't want to do it, but I had to. And this gave me for about a year and a half a lot of problems. And then one day I began to look at myself and I was very ashamed. So I don't have the guts to either accept it as it comes and I say, and I'm not, a, I'm not of service at convenient times, but I'm really, my only choice was to become a servant day and night. Even, at even if I had to sacrifice myself and my family or I'd get out of the racket. And I got out for a few months and I was miserable. So I went back and I said, I'll accept any challenge, any job, any day, any time, anywhere that they call upon me, I will be there. You know what happened? It's really solved because you don't have this contradiction, you know, gee, I love people so much, but I hate to have uh, kids, you know, because we're so expensive. Very standard American remark. We love people, but we don't want to have children because they're very expensive. We want to help people, but we don't want to do it on Sundays or after 5 o'clock because what the hell, we want to have our own life. Or we want to be of service to people, but I'll get an un unlisted telephone number so I won't be bothered. If you're in that category, you better, you know, forget it. Join the business community, you'd be better off there. I had a, a fast, a very well-publicized fast. A couple of weeks after the fast, I went, I spoke at a high school in Redlands, California. Redlands, California is a, if you're not familiar with that town, it's the, one of the places where Nixon got the most votes, the highest percentage of votes in 1960. But anyway, I went to this. There was a kid in the, way in the back of the room. And he got, it was an honest question. He got up and he said, Mr. Chavez, could you tell us what did you eat during the fast? And many people have asked, were there any positive results of the, as the, the result of the, of the fast? Were there something concrete positive that took place? What were the gains? And, and the only claim I can really make is that I had a vacation. Because I hadn't been ahead of vacation since 1962, so I rested for 25 days. Or people say, how was your hunger strike? <laughs> and I'd like to, right now, right now, give me my, give me my version of, so there's a great difference between a hunger strike and a fast. And I'm, I'm serious. The day I went on a fast, we told the employers that I was going on a fast, that it would not be used in any way whatsoever to compel them or to force them or to put pressure in any way for them to give us a, to sign a contract. We relaxed the boycott uh, operations throughout the country, and we even called off the picket line for 25 days. We wanted to prove to the employers and everybody else that this was not a hunger strike, but that this was something different. Now, if five of my members in my union are committing violent acts, and if I tell them, I will stop eating, I will eat no food until you stop committing, committing violence against property or life, if I were to say that, 
this wouldn't be a hunger strike either. See, when you, when you stop eating to correct those who follow you or those who are on your side, that's not a hunger strike. But when you stop eating because you want to get an end, you want to use that as a means to get what you want, to create pressure, public sentiment, now that's a hunger strike. And that's the difference. That's the, the difference. And it was a very personal act. It was a very personal act. I maintain that most of us are not violent. And I can prove it. If we were violent, there wouldn't be any training centers for the Army and the Navy and the Air Force. They'd just get, it from, get us off the street and send us to Vietnam or wherever it may be. If we're by nature violent. But we're not. They have to train us. They have to. I was, in the, I was in the Second World War. They have to destroy you. What they say is very simple. You obey the officer at all costs. Even if it costs you life, you obey the officer. That's all they say. They don't tell you to go kill people, people to destroy property, to pull the trigger. Uh -uh. They tell you to obey orders. And after you go through the training period, and they really break you, and they really psychologically, you know, remake you, and then when you go across, then that's where they give you the order. Pull the trigger. That's what they do. Now, if that wasn't the case, then they wouldn't have to train us. They wouldn't. I'm sure that without that training, most of us would, even if it meant giving up our own lives, would not shoot, would refuse to shoot. I'm sure of that. Well, similarly, nonviolence in a struggle I'm, I'm talking about nonviolence, not in a closet or not inside a monastery. I'm talking a kind of nonviolence action like Dr. King, right out in the gutter with the people, right out there where the poor are suffering. This type of action, this type of nonviolence is very difficult. And so there must also be training to really, really be nonviolent, total commitment. You have to be willing to give your life or give your life. And so I would say that Dr. King was totally nonviolent. He gave his life for it. All of us who li li live and breathe there and are here are not, never will be nonviolent. We are striving. It's a long road. You have to remake yourself in many instances. And so the fast was really a training, a discipline to be able to continue to be nonviolent. It's very difficult as a leader to maintain nonviolence. And who knows, maybe I'm more violent or apt to think of violence a lot more than, than most of you. And then every time you speak of nonviolence and fasting, then automatically you think of civil disobedience. And I'm asked many times, what, is it, what are your views on civil disobedience? I think that if, after careful consideration, civil disobedience is a very, it's a very important matter. I think after careful consideration, after, this would be my advice, after you have really examined the issue, examined your conscience, you're ready, you make a decision that you want to disobey that law, then you have a perfect right to disobey the law. 
even if you're wrong in your judgment that that law is unjust, you have a right to disobey. But also, that brings with it a great responsibility. You have to then be able to want to and submit to accept any punishment that the civil law may, may met out. And if I were to break a law purposely, civil disobedience, I would be compelled then to go to the judge and say, give me the maximum time. I broke a law, I'm willing to take the punishment. But if you disobey the law and then want to get an attorney to come and defend you, that's not civil disobedience. Don't ever think it is. Because the most important thing is that there has to be responsibility with your acts. And so there's much protest nowadays. We have protest in the, in the uh, prisons. The prisoners are protesting. You read in the papers, almost every week, prisoners get up and they protest against the food, against the treatment and so forth. And of course, the Negro is protesting in the ghettos. The Mexican-American is protesting in the barrios. The farm workers are protesting. And even the students are protesting. I hear you had uh, a case here in New York several days ago. <laughs> and I think it's good. I think it's good. I think protest is good. It has to be. But let me tell you, at the expense of being very unpopular with you, protest itself is not enough. Protest itself is not enough because to protest, you don't have to accept the responsibility of what comes as the aftermath. If you commit another student to follow you in a protest and then the protest dies down and you, you pull out, that's the end of it. The issue is still there, but you just leave. You've committed, I think, a grave injustice to those students who commit themselves and give everything. They give themselves completely to the movement. So along with protest, we've got to have something more permanent. The protest is the vehicle to get to where you're going. It's not, it's not the end itself. I would like to suggest, and I know that before too long we're going to have this, I, I would really like to see a prisoner's union, a contract signed with a warden where the prisoners have every right. It's, it's negotiated while the protest is going on. It's signed in a grievance procedure. And I'd like to see the same thing for the students. I've seen many movements in the last four years, students' movements. So what happens, you know, you... Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get half a loaf, sometimes you get half a quarter of a loaf, sometimes you don't get any, not even a slice. Sometimes you may get the whole loaf. But what does that mean? Who does that bind? But what happens if you build a union of students and you keep management out. The faculty should not be a part of the student union, I don't think. And you elect your representatives and you write a contract, a collective agreement, and you bargain with the, with the uh, faculty. Okay, do you think I'll be able to finish the speech here? And it's in writing, you have a grievance procedure and you put it in black and white and sign it. And until you have that, you don't have anything unless you could keep the students in perpetual protest, and that's very difficult to do, because the exams come up, you know, all of the things. 
you have to give up your uh, flight. The boycott is a key for our success in New York City. I'd like very much to see, and we need your help for this, no grapes in, in New York City. Just to be sure not to make any errors, no grapes. Don't eat grapes. Don't let your friends eat grapes. Don't let, any, don't let this university sell any grapes in the kitchen. Just no grapes. And if you do that for us, we promise you that we will win the strike. And we want to publicize the boycott. We like to have bumper, bumper stickers. This is our own campaign. And we'd like to have gum labels and buttons and everything. But above everything else, we should, everywhere we go, say no grapes. If you do that, I think this is the most direct way in which you can help a group of workers who are truly struggling for two and a half years now to have, to become a part of our society, to really, to really gain that, that manhood that the powerful forces have taken away from us, to give us that right to live and act and to enjoy all of the privileges as human beings. Thank you very much. Access America. America. History in the history making. In the making. 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 History in history the making. In the making. Looking for your next favorite podcast? Stop searching and let Potable do the work for you. 
Potable is the only podcast listening platform that uses artificial intelligence to recommend podcasts tailored to you. Import your favorites automatically and instantly discover countless options. Download the app in the iOS App Store or visit Potable.co to access a world of discovery. Yep, that's Potable. P-O-D-I-B-L-E. That's some good app. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.